This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Let's imagine a common scenario. Unfortunately, your long-term relationship has ended. The romantic partner you once shared little indulgences with, from late-night snacks to stolen kisses to your most embarrassing secrets, isn't your match anymore. You've gone your separate ways. And despite nursing some heartache, it seems the split is for the best. In the coming weeks, you'll need to figure out how to be single again. Seems daunting, but you'll figure it out. Everyone else does. But just as you're getting into the swing of being solo again, you have a nagging sensation. You feel like you're being watched. The unease starts with subtle things. A note left on your windshield with a smiley face, feeling like someone is five steps behind you in a crowd. Then it becomes more evident. A car tails you home after work. To make matters worse, you know that car. Your stomach drops. It's the same one your ex drives. The plates match, too. You send a text joking that it's not funny. Please, you plead, a little space. This contact opens the floodgates. A reply comes, they'll back off if you'll talk. Meet up. Come on. But you don't want to. Something has changed for the worse. You avoid their repeated calls and texts, and then it escalates. On the walk to your car one night, you see them idling across the parking lot, waiting for you. You can't walk yourself to the car. You don't want to reach out again to explain that this behavior is completely unacceptable. It will just make it worse. The pervasive fear of what could happen wraps you up at night like a grim blanket. You're terrified of being alone and the vulnerability it brings. Like all the movies and news articles you've seen, it only takes one moment of letting your guard down for a stalker to make their move. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. 
I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our sixth episode on the dark side of dating. While the quest for love is often filled with heartbreak and missteps, it can also prompt far more worrisome behavior. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other Parcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we're examining stalking. It's a chilling behavior that can follow both casual dates and long-term relationships alike. And stalkers don't just terrorize victims, they wreak havoc on their families too. A quick note, when discussing the behaviors of stalking in this episode, we will refer to those being stalked as victims. This term doesn't represent an analysis or judgment of those who are or have been stalked. Back in the 1960s, there was a little expression to describe feeling absolutely smitten with a person you barely knew. Mooning over someone. Crushes give us a rush, and we can find ourselves obsessively thinking about them. It's fun to wonder what someone is doing and imagining yourself there with them. But in recent decades, technology has given us more and unfettered access, which can make it hard to delineate where curiosity ends and downright stalking begins. Nebulous territory indeed. Though stalking can be brought on by anyone in pursuit of any gender, historically, women have been the demographic most affected. As of 2011, it's estimated that one out of every six women in the United States has been a victim of stalking. Stalking is clinically defined as explicitly engaging in a course of conduct directed at a specific person that causes significant emotional distress in such person and serves no legitimate purpose. To boil that down, it's one person keeping a pulse on another person at nearly all times, with the hope of inciting some reaction that allows for further contact or control. The game for stalkers is cat and mouse, equal parts psychological and physical. And to play the game, moves or behaviors are required. Stalking is an umbrella term that encompasses a slew of aggressive actions, including, but not limited to, a stalker repeatedly calling or texting their victim, which can be followed by harassment on social media. The aggressor may even take to slandering their victim online in order to provoke a response. Often, when this type of indirect contact is ignored, the stalker may make physical attempts to meet their victim. Unwanted notes and gifts can be coupled with a stalker waiting outside a victim's place of work or home. If the victim avoids this contact, the pursuer typically escalates again. This time, violent actions like breaking into a victim's car or home or vandalizing property may occur. 
Stalkers want their prey to know that they were there. There's no escape. Finally, stalkers often turn to staging emergencies or distressing situations like sudden injuries or sickness. They're hoping that the situation they've created seems so urgent that their victim, fearing life or death consequences, must respond. Responding. It's the result stalkers crave. They latch onto their victims in order to be seen and in order to elicit something in return. They gamble that their behavior will reopen the lines of communication. By acting this way, stalkers actually hold their victims in a paradox. They want their prey to be both passive and active. On the one hand, stalkers objectify their subjects. They have to, to suppress any feelings of empathy for their victims, and thus, pangs of conscience for their own behavior. On the other hand, though, by attempting to elicit a reaction, stalkers admit that their victims have the ultimate power in the game. The power to acknowledge the stalker or ignore them. The obsession and pursuit, though, always remains one-sided. Despite what a stalker may try to convince their victim of, according to Emily Spence Deal's Stalking, a Handbook for Victims, stalking originates in the mind of the perpetrator, not in the behavior or appearance of a victim. Some stalkers try to muddy this fact in order to excuse their behavior. They try to gaslight victims into thinking their own actions have egged on the pursuit, that they deserved it. In the minds of these stalkers, it's the only explanation that makes sense. Because above all, stalkers believe their own needs and beliefs are the most important matter at hand. These people are their own echo chambers. When the reverberation of their behavior bounces back, they explain it away with their self-serving perspective. These kinds of thoughts don't have one clear origin. Some stalkers perceive that they have been rejected by another individual. This feeling then compels them to seek revenge. Other stalkers claim they're responding to a victim's entitlement, while others, perhaps most unsettlingly of all, believe their actions are the result of destiny. One particular type of this destiny delusion is erotomania, which means a false belief that the stalker is actually in a committed consensual relationship with their victim. This misconception can stem from deep-rooted narcissism. Some individuals are simply unable to comprehend that the person they desire doesn't feel the same about them. The 1989 murder of actress Rebecca Schaefer was a textbook case of unrequited affection that turned deadly. Though today, most states classify stalking as a felony or misdemeanor, back in 1989, there was no law, state or federal, outlining clear repercussions for the collective behaviors of stalking. It wasn't as openly talked about, and thus it wasn't condemned. People thought that maybe celebrities encountered too many excited fans. At least, that's what grocery store tabloids said to sell rags. But being followed didn't seem like anything other than mystique. Yet the tragic fate that awaited one actress changed everything. In 1989, Rebecca Schaefer was enjoying her time in the limelight. 
she'd risen to fame on the CBS sitcom My Sister Sam, holding court as one of television's sweethearts. And Schaefer had even bigger things on the horizon. She was in the running for an upcoming role in Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather Part Three. On July 18th, she was awaiting the delivery of the film's script when a dizzying slew of events unfolded on the doorstep of her Hollywood home. Schaefer answered the door to find a young man ringing her doorbell, 19-year-old Robert John Bardo. And he was clutching an odd assortment of things. Amongst them was a headshot of Schaefer and a paperback of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. Unfortunately, the novel was too subtle a clue to tip off the young actress. Carrying the book, though, was a common, symbolic act with killers. John Lennon's killer also carried a copy when he shot the singer in 1981. According to NBC News, Bardo's obsession with Schaefer wasn't new. Quite the contrary. He'd been tracking her from his home in Arizona for an estimated three years. He'd first tried to edge his way into her periphery through a stream of fan letters and small presents. When that didn't work, he traveled to the Warner Brothers studio lot in Los Angeles where my sister Sam filmed. Allegedly, Bardo arrived at the studio entrance one day with a knife. Security guards found it before he could enter and instructed him to leave. But as each rejection sent Bardo back to Arizona empty-handed, he grew more desperate and persistent. Finally, with the help of a private investigator, Bardo found Schaefer's home address in L.A.'s Fairfax neighborhood. After she opened the door that day in July, what followed was a brief, if not slightly confusing, conversation. Obviously, the actress was surprised to find Bardo on her doorstep, though she allegedly was kind and told him to take care. This interaction didn't satisfy whatever fantasy Bardo had created in his mind. Later reporting suggests that he was either infatuated with her or that he wanted to impart some type of punishment on her in response to an intimate scene she had filmed for a recent movie. Had anyone known that retribution was Bardo's end goal, it would have been a blatant warning sign. However, he remained tight-lipped and left Schaefer's doorstep after their conversation. But just an hour later, he was back. Naturally, Schaefer answered again. Sadly, she opened the door to find a 357 Magnum pistol pointed at her chest. Bardo shot her on the spot, and she fell to the ground gasping. Her last words were said to have simply been, Why? Though she was taken to the nearby Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, doctors were unable to save her. Schaefer was just 21 years old. Bardo was caught and arrested in Tucson, Arizona the next day. Prosecutors wasted no time in gathering evidence. They confirmed Bardo's numerous trips to L.A. and verified he had been lingering around the Warner Brothers studio lot on those visits. He was brought to trial in September of 1991 and soon sentenced to life in prison without parole. As of 2020, he continues to serve his sentence in a California state penitentiary. Coming up, the country reels at the loss of one of America's TV sweethearts and worries how to protect itself from future tragedies. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Following the conviction of the man who killed actress Rebecca Schaefer in 1989, people wondered exactly how concerned they should be about stalkers. Hollywood, where the killing had taken place, was relieved to see Bardo behind bars, but it was still rattled. Celebrities grew wary of their pedestal status. They worried about the sightseeing tours that wound through the Hollywood Hills, pointing out exactly who lived where. Bardo's trial had certainly brought incredible privacy loopholes to light. The private investigator that he hired hadn't had to dig very far to locate Schaefer. He'd gotten her address right from the Department of Motor Vehicles. And it wasn't just movie stars who were alarmed. According to NBC journalist Patrick Healy, the case reminded people that danger could be lurking right outside. Cut someone off while driving? They may just go to the DMV for your address. Furthermore, the American public was very confused as to how they should respond to threatening behavior. Despite the fact that Bardo had been found lingering around the studio lot, according to a security officer, he hadn't committed an offense that warranted arrest. He hadn't done anything wrong. That is, until he shot Schaefer. To address this, the conversations pivoted to how to prevent more tragedies in the future. Two massive changes were ushered in. First, in 1989, as reported by the L.A. Times, California Governor George Dukmajian ordered the Department of Motor Vehicles to restrict the public release of home addresses in order to protect motorists from possible harm or harassment. At least now, no one else could go sniffing around public records to obtain home addresses. A small consolation. And the following year, in 1990, California passed the country's first law criminalizing stalking. According to an article in Good Housekeeping, the law makes it a felony to cause another or their family to be in reasonable fear for their safety and carries a state prison sentence. And this legislation has held strong for the past 30 years. As of 2020, the law is recognized in all 50 states. But even the strictest laws are by no means the end of the complex problem of stalking. The tragic murder of Rebecca Schaefer was simply one extreme example. If anything, it demonstrated that the process itself begins long before it can be recognized. In fact, no one was addressing the elephant in the room. That we're bombarded with threats of stalking on a much more casual level all the time. Hollywood romantic comedies have long touted the idea that being romantically pursued is... Cute, persistent, desirable. These movies say, embrace the process. These movies, which are typically aimed at women, indicate that being hard to get means you're a good catch. So the pursuit heats up, 
And as movies show, according to The Guardian, valorizing the obsessive pursuit of an unattainable target is a staple of the rom-com, the pop song, even the Bible story. So we believe the chase is something to relish rather than fear. According to Vice News, such representations of unhealthy relationship dynamics in pop culture can blur our understanding of the difference between romantic persistence and threatening obsession. Vice cited a few movies as problematic. Amongst them was There's Something About Mary. In this particular rom-com, a man hires a private investigator to track down a woman he's infatuated with. Such films routinely romanticize the persistent would-be lover. They suggest he just loves her. Give the guy a break. Relationship Abuse Foundation, One Love, weighed in as well, listing The Notebook, Twilight, The Graduate, and Love Actually as equally worrisome examples. The Graduate, in particular, despite its gilded status as a film classic, is quite a bitter pill. One Love pointed out that protagonist Ben's dogged pursuit of Elaine is an unsettling mirror to the real-life experiences of women being stalked. The most horrifying bit, though, is that his refusal to give up is ultimately rewarded. At the end of the movie, Elaine rejects her fiancé for Ben. In doing so, not only is Ben's stalking behavior excused, it's portrayed as successful. Some may chalk this up to the film being made in 1967, but that doesn't mean it stopped being relevant. When movies are relished as classics, they influence newer iterations. And so these troublesome themes continue to shape our perception of boundaries, especially when it comes to our own relationships. We may joke that strangers are the most fearsome stalkers, but the majority of dangerous behavior actually originates much closer to home, from friends, colleagues, or close mentors. These relationships are inherently close-knit and can involve a romantic component. As with any partnership involving vulnerability, when feelings are expressed, the door for rejection swings right open. Sometimes one person is more invested than the other. In other situations, a partner can show signs of controlling behavior even before it seems like a major problem. According to an article by Vice News, the more unhealthy the previous relationship was, the more likely a partner is to stalk the other if the relationship sours. In other words, if a person breaks up with their partner and it causes disagreement or hostility, those feelings can escalate into dangerous behaviors. Vice found an estimated 60.8% of women who responded to the 2014 CDC survey reported that they were currently or previously in a romantic relationship with their stalker. When people have already been involved with a partner who later turns obsessive or violent, it's increasingly difficult to terminate all contact. This often happens because the person being pursued still has an emotional attachment to their stalker, all threatening behavior aside. Another report by T.K. Logan and the National Institute of Justice confirmed this, indicating that the duration of partner stalking averages out to nearly two years. Though this study was based on opposite-sex partners, it's important to note that stalking can follow both same-sex 
end opposite-sex relationships. Curtin University in Perth, Australia, found in 2011 that at least a quarter of adult stalking cases involve same-sex stalking and that the numbers may be higher among juvenile populations. The paper also indicated that same-sex stalkers were more likely to be charged with threats and other offenses. While many opposite-sex stalkers target their prey in an effort to fulfill intimate fantasies, usually regarding sex, the Curtin University study found same-sex stalkers are motivated more by grievance. In other words, they're upset about how the relationship ended. This inclination can make stalkers more likely to physically threaten their ex, hence the higher likelihood of trespassing and property damage. Sexual preference aside, ex-lovers, as a collective group, remain the most alarming category of potential stalkers. And one case took this established pattern to a terrifying new low. In 2008, a stable, committed, long-term relationship deteriorated due to one partner's mental health. And the consequences were grave. This was the case of Cindy Bischoff, a 43-year-old commercial real estate broker from Illinois. Bischoff and her boyfriend, Michael Giroux, dated for three years before moving in together in Arlington Heights, a Chicago suburb, in 2002. However, things started to turn when Giroux's mental health spiraled. In 2007, he lost his job and began lingering around the house. When his employment prospects didn't improve, he took to drinking heavily. Having tried to help her boyfriend in every way possible, but to no avail, Bischoff finally broke things off. She asked him to move out, which he did, albeit begrudgingly. Unfortunately, having Giroux out of the house didn't mean he was out of her life. When Bischoff refused to engage with him through phone calls and texts, Giroux escalated his behavior. While Bischoff was at work, he broke into her condo and vandalized the entire interior. According to a police report, Giroux spray-painted walls, furniture, even the chandelier on the ceiling, causing as much as $50,000 in damage. But the cost of the repairs wasn't so much the point. Giroux was marking his territory. Bischoff was horrified. She knew this violation was meant to rattle her. It was heartbreaking, but the man she had spent so much time with was now unrecognizable. And he would only become more so. Fearing more retribution, Bischoff took out a restraining order against Giroux. It was a first step, though she worried it may not be enough. She also asked authorities on various occasions that Giroux be required to wear a GPS monitoring bracelet. If he broke the distance stated in the restraining order, the tracker would immediately alert police. An Illinois judge, however, declined, stating it wasn't within his realm to order such protections. This seemed to indicate that preventative measures weren't yet considered essential in stalking cases. Whatever the legalities, this was bad news for Bischoff. As she'd feared, despite the restraining order, Giroux kept trying to make contact. He soon broke into her home for a second time and attempted to hang himself on the patio of her condo. This finally triggered a criminal conviction. 
The punishment for the patio break-in was two months of jail time, which he served. Bischoff was relieved. With Giroux in prison, she finally had some breathing room. She could sleep a little easier at night. At least he wouldn't be following her out of work, or worse, waiting for her when she arrived home at night. After a long and awful saga, there seemed to be a brief light at the end of the tunnel. But this sense of security was false. A few months after his release from prison, in March of 2008, Giroux appeared in the parking lot outside of Bischoff's office, this time with a revolver. After waiting for her to walk to her car, he shot Bischoff at point blank and then killed himself. It was a gruesome end to a cycle of predatory violence. Following her death, Bischoff's grief-stricken family sprung into action. Bischoff's brother and parents were steadfast in speaking about their experience. Despite the tragedy that had taken Cindy from them, they looked to the future, hoping to protect others from similar grisly circumstances. They pushed state legislators to pass the GPS tracking law that could have saved Cindy. The law passed in Illinois one year later in 2009. It states that offenders who have broken the terms of protection orders may be required by a judge to wear any type of electronic tracking device. As of 2020, the Cindy Bischoff Law has been enacted in more than 20 states, with at least seven more cases in progress. Ironically, the Cindy Bischoff Law is still on the floor in California. The same state that created the first protections to combat stalking in 1989. And while the laws passed following Schaefer and Bischoff's murders have created a few tangible paths for prosecuting stalking, legislation mainly addresses the physicality of stalking, and only once it's already happening. This is troublesome. As mentioned earlier, all stages of stalking place a heavy psychological burden on victims. And for the victims that do win court action against their attackers, they may still live with a fear that never quite dissipates. A report from the OC Weekly interviewed 10 women on their mental health after being stalked. Despite knowing her stalker wasn't following her anymore, one woman remembered the suffocating fear. I always wore sturdy shoes when I lived in the city, so I could run if I needed to. Sadly, some people never truly feel safe again, despite taking every legal precaution available. It can seem like the only option is to disappear. Some stalking victims have to go so far as to change their names and identities, moving far from their preferred address in order to find safety. For these individuals, safety comes at a tremendous sacrifice. Coming up, we'll look at the incessant rise of ex-partner stalking and how cell phone apps have compounded this problem. Now back to the story. While many victims of stalking are aware that they're being pursued thanks to the confrontational behavior of their stalkers, in other instances, new technology has made it harder for some to tell whether they're being tracked. Romantic partner monitoring, when someone uses websites and apps to watch another person obsessively, has emerged in the past decade or so alongside the social media boom. In years prior, after a relationship ended, 
If one party was still heartbroken, they might check in with friends to see how their ex was doing. It wasn't uncommon to frequent old hangouts, like bars or coffee shops, hoping for the accidental run-in. Social media, however, took nearly all the effort out of these behaviors. With a couple taps and swipes, it's easy to find out exactly what someone has been up to, who they've been hanging out with, and what's up next. After all, social media is a hybrid of accomplishment touting and keeping up with the Joneses. Letting your feed know where you are is akin to status. A little pin drop shows people that you can afford rooftop margaritas. But geotags are also convenient for people on the other end of the app. And they're a great way to subtly monitor someone, even after a relationship ends. Ex-partners and predators alike can use Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to keep tabs on anyone they want. And often, social media profiles go back years' worth of posts and data, which can help predators identify hangouts, routines, and patterns. The new societal norm of constantly letting people know where we are is some tricky, uncharted territory. Take Instagram, for example. Fifteen years ago, the app might have been considered a privacy liability. Remember the Stranger Danger ads from the early 2000s? Yeah, Instagram might have been something they'd warn you to stay away from. Before social media, it would have seemed absurd to broadcast the details of your personal life to complete strangers. Where you work out, where you shop for groceries, what your pajamas look like. All of that used to be private. But as it became more common to be less protective of our personal information, we too became more voyeuristic towards others. Today, following someone else's life every day via their Instagram isn't creepy. It's normal. So little by little, we want to know just a bit more about everyone. It's pretty logical, then, that more access in general makes us inclined to be curious about potential romantic partners. When we're told from every angle to look, listen, and like, it's hard to curb the habit. And if someone starts paying us attention that we don't want, well, there's an easy solution to that unwanted exposure, right? Just put your activity on private or block them on the app. Not quite. Even when users make their accounts private and don't tag their location, other apps have stepped in to allow unsolicited tracking. A New York Times expose found that apps meant to encourage safety have now bridged into dual-purpose mechanisms. They actually allow controlling partners to monitor their significant others with shocking accuracy. According to the New York Times, KidGuard, the app largely aimed at parents, also bought ads alongside Google results for searches like Catch Cheating Spouse app. These companies found they could cash in on paranoid partners. But obviously, this wasn't a marketing strategy to tout. When reporters reached out to the app to learn more about these alleged new strategies, they later found KidGuard had since deleted its paper trail of blog posts about tracking romantic partners. But when one door closes, another URL opens. That's how the saying goes, right? Though these safety apps step back from overtly promoting other sordid uses, that doesn't mean they didn't keep profiting. 
The New York Times suspected the apps had found a loophole. They looked to YouTube to see if there was a connection. There, they found a wide variety of step-by-step tutorials on how to use safety monitoring apps to catch a partner cheating. Though it was unclear if the brand reached out to people to make the videos or if the tutorials by Avid users were found later, the effect was the same. They drove new users to start using the app. Especially since the sections below the videos often linked directly back to the app's website. And lest we forget, the YouTube video owner's special link tells the app company that they were the one to send new customers over. Meaning, they can be compensated handsomely as marketing affiliates. So paranoia is now a profitable business. But we don't often recognize it, especially when it's baked into a format we desperately like, like social media and TV. Take one recent show by Lifetime, which had no trouble reeling in viewers like fish. You follows Joe Goldberg, a mid-twenties bookseller in New York City, who becomes completely obsessed with a woman named Beck after they have a meet-cute at the store. Oh, and Joe also happens to be a serial killer, but that comes later. We'll stick to what comes from his stalking behaviors. He tracks Beck meticulously as we hear him tell the viewer his side of the story through cutting voiceover. Joe is an unreliable narrator who presents the audience with his warped reality. He's following this woman because he believes they should be together. Though on screen, audiences are seeing visual cues that Joe is controlling and manic, his voice tells them otherwise. His narrative is self-effacing and witty. And more, what audiences see defies the trope of a stalker. Joe isn't a greasy-haired bum or a social pariah who never leaves the house. He passes for normal. To contribute to these complicated dualities, Joe, played by actor Penn Badgley, is quite attractive by typical standards. And as many successful shows know, this can be the hook in and of itself. Badgley's persona, paired with the show's later distribution by Netflix, meant you quickly found a large fan base. In December of 2019, the streaming giant touted that over 43 million people had burned through the whole first season since it was released online. Fans praised the show, despite the entire premise of you being that Joe is stalking Beck in hopes that they end up together, viewers are smitten by what they see, which is quite troubling. Website Refinery29 confirmed prior viewing habits likely influenced this reaction, saying, Earlier conditioning from movies has impacted how we watch. Women and men are conditioned by romantic comedies to confuse harassment and devotion, which theoretically could explain people's thirst while watching you. When a stalker isn't blatantly unattractive or threatening in a way that registers as dangerous, people are highly inclined to romanticize that person. And TV producers know it's an extremely fine line between suspenseful and scary, so they're careful not to show the physical violence that can accompany such obsessive behavior. They simply allude to what could happen and let the audience's imaginations take it from there. 
Understandably, this has led to a very confusing dialogue between the show's main actor and its fans. Glamour called this to attention, saying, one of the most bizarre things to come from Netflix's hit series You is the amount of people attracted to Penn Badgley's character, Joe, who, if you're unfamiliar, is both a stalker and a murderer. Fans, who are often women, keep tweeting that they'd love to be in Beck's position. They wanted their own Joes pining after their every move. These fans even tweeted at Penn Badgley, inviting him to come kidnap them. Understandably, Badgley replied on Twitter to set the record straight. He sent replies to fans underscoring the reality of the show, saying, Joe's a murderer, and, but you're supposed to see past my face to the crazy shit. Badgley has now taken on the role of moderator, reminding fans of his dualities and connecting them to the message behind the plot. With season two already streaming, he keeps reminding viewers to look past Joe's smoldering charm and acknowledge a few bleak truths. Stalking comes from unlikely sources. Don't be fooled by a wolf in sheep's clothing. TV isn't real. And above all, it would suffice to say Badgley believes wholeheartedly that stalking does not justify love or that an aggressive pursuit should award a stalker the chance to convince their victim that a real relationship could develop. Ah, the stalker's unwavering need to convince, which is perhaps the eeriest theme that runs through each and every one of these stories, both real and fictionalized. Stalkers want to use whatever tool they can, be it conversation, emotional leverage, or their own good looks to lure their victim back within their grasp. So as you go about your quest for a special someone, consider that relationships are reciprocal engagements. When one person is no longer willing to play ball, the game stops. And if you find yourself waxing poetic about someone holding a boombox outside your window at night, remind yourself that stalking is anything but mutual. No person should ever have to convince you to be with them. The power of persuasion is valuable for many things. Boundaries isn't one of them. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back to discuss the dark side of criminal couples. You can find all ParCast originals on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>